0: So go ahead and turn to John chapter 16, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll find one under the seat in front of you. And it's, there we go. So it's on page 623 of that Bible. And I want to ask you a couple questions as you're looking for that. Don't answer out loud. This is just, don't even tell your neighbor, this is just to reflect on for yourself. What kinds of things bring sorrow to people? What kinds of things bring sorrow? What kinds of things bring sorrow to yourself, to you personally? So we can just think on that for a moment. What kinds of things bring joy then? What kinds of things bring joy to people? What kinds of things bring joy to you? I know it's hard not to answer out loud or to tell your neighbor. You're doing a good job of that. So, is it possible, last question, is it possible that the same thing can produce joy and sorrow? That the exact, Dan? Everybody's doing great. <laughs> so you answer. So is it possible the same thing can bring both? So hold on to those thoughts about sorrow and joy. We'll get back to that in a minute. So we're coming to the end of Jesus' upper room discourse. This is the last time that he, he really talked to the disciples, had a, an extended period of time of teaching. And we're in John chapter 16. After chapter 16 today, the remainder of the time that Jesus spends in the upper room, he won't be teaching the disciples per se. He'll be praying to the Father. And so the next couple weeks, uh, Chuck will be bringing some, past, some sermons from John chapter 17, where. Jesus is teaching the disciples, certainly, but it's kind of like we're eavesdropping in as he prays to his father. So this is the last time in the upper room, right before Jesus is betrayed and then crucified, that he has that extended time of teaching of the disciples. So he began in in chapter 13, this upper room discourse began in chapter 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, if you'll remember that. Washing the disciples' feet, and then he revealed the betrayer. He shared how salvation comes through him and through him alone we saw how the holy spirit jesus taught the holy spirit can't come until he dies so uh, he's taught all these things along the way and all along the way jesus has been he's been calming the fears of the disciples and why were the disciples afraid well it's because jesus wouldn't stop talking about dying he wouldn't stop talking about dying and going away. So just, if we only look at the book of John, he said he was going to die in chapter two, in chapter eight, chapter three, chapter eight, chapter 10, and chapter 12. He said how he would die in, in John chapter 12, verse 33. And furthermore, it's, it's really astounding how often he talks about going. He said in chapter seven, I go. In chapter eight, he said, I'm going. In chapter 13, he said, I'm going. In chapter 14, he said, I go, he said it three times, I go, I go, I go to the Father. And now in chapter 16, he's already said it twice, I go and I go. And often he says, it's better for you that I go. So he told details about his arrest, about being betrayed, about being spit on and scourged, just constant talk about his death. So no wonder the disciples were afraid. But he also talked about rising from the dead. He talked about returning to his Father. So he's telling them, he's trying to calm their fears, he's trying to tell them that that despite his departure, every contingency has been planned, everything's been ordained, everything's already been orchestrated in such a way, and that it's all for their well-being. It's all for the well-being of the disciples and us. So for Jesus, the cross is always looming in the not-so-distant future. The Holy Spirit can't come until Jesus goes to the Father by way of the cross, and His going is for the disciples' good. The disciples will serve as witnesses to a fallen world, but first, the cross. More truth will be revealed through the Holy Spirit in the form of the New Testament being written, but first, the cross. So today we'll hear Jesus say that the disciples' sorrow will turn into joy. There's sorrow in the cross. But there's also joy in the cross as well. So I want you to understand these words that we're going to read, John chapter 16, these are actually encouraging things, encouraging words from Jesus. But they're really only encouraging in a lasting way if we understand what he's saying. So my my goal is, my hope is that today you'll be encouraged not just for this moment, but also later today, also tomorrow morning, next week, next month, that we'll take that seriously and understand what he's really trying to say to us. So the message of Jesus in chapter 16 is that we will have sorrow, but Jesus can turn that sorrow into joy. He says that he's overcome the world, but does it matter to us or does it make any real tangible difference that he's overcome the world? It's encouraging when Jesus says, and we'll read this, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It's encouraging to think about heaven for the moment. It's encouraging to see, think about seeing Jesus, not having any pain or trial or anguish or, reject, or rejection when we get to heaven. Yes, the world is difficult, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus says. It's encouraging to hear that Jesus identifies with our struggles and that he's overcome those struggles and that we can have peace when we put our faith and our trust in him. So we know those words that we're gonna hear are encouraging to us, but all too often, those aren't the things that matter later this afternoon or they're not the things that matter monday morning when you go to work or next christmas when you visit your family or when the collection agency calls what matters in that moment is the miscarriage or losing your job or that that man doesn't love me the way that i want him to so we need to get to a place where it matters that Jesus overcame the world, where that really makes a difference in our lives. And that what he has and is doing for us is more important than what's going on around us. So Jesus might temporarily encourage you for the next few minutes, but if the promises that he's making aren't really what you want, then what difference does the promise that he's making, what, what difference do those promises make in our lives? So what we need this morning and for always is to realize just how appealing Jesus is He's everything that we need, and everything that Jesus is and offers, we need. Everything that Jesus isn't, everything that he doesn't offer, we don't need those things. So let's try to see that. We're going to read a long passage of Scripture this morning. John chapter 16, verses 16, all the way through the end of that chapter. And Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your scripture. Thank you for the words of Jesus here that promise hope in a world that is troubled. God, we see so much sorrow around us. We have so much sorrow in our own lives, but God, help us to see that you can turn that sorrow into joy, that when we make Christ our life, when we abide in him, that the result of that is peace, the result of that is joy. Help us to seek after the things that really give joy in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a couple of things that I I want us to see before we we move towards understanding what Jesus is talking about regarding sorrow turning into joy. So these are things that will hopefully help us to see how attractive Jesus is, how appealing Jesus is, how much better he is than anything else that we have in life. The sermon series is titled Christ, Our Life. So we have a basis on which to believe that and stand on that truth just from this passage today. So the first thing we need to see as we recognize how appealing Jesus is, is that Jesus knows us. And what's more is that Jesus loves us. So Jesus is viewing everything, as I said earlier, from the perspective of the cross. The cross is coming. And when he could be thinking of himself, he's thinking instead of the disciples. He realizes the fear. He realizes the confusion. He realizes the grief that they're facing. They're not really ready for his coming death. We'll we'll talk more about this in just a moment about how well he knows us in a minute. But for now, just realize that he doesn't answer their question. In verses 17 and 18, he answers their need. Their question is, what does it mean, Jesus, that we won't see you and then we will see you? And Jesus doesn't answer them. What he offers, though, is better. He offers reassurance. He reassures them in their fear and their confusion. So they need that more than they can even form the right words to to express what they want or what they need from him. So for now, trust that this passage shows that Christ should be our life because he knows and loves us intimately and deeply. He knows what we need even when we can't voice that ourselves. Second, Jesus is appealing to to us because he knows the future. In just this short passage, we see that he knew that there would be weeping and lamenting, but that it would turn to joy and that happened, right? He said that the disciples would scatter and that Jesus would be left alone. They did scatter. He was left alone. He said that there would be trouble in the world and there is. He said that he would return again and that he would be overjoyed and that we would be overjoyed and he did and they were. He returned both for 40 days after his resurrection he returned as the holy spirit. So we can trust Jesus. We can put our faith in him. We can believe him and take him in his word we can make christ our life because jesus knows the future as well and third jesus is appealing to us because he always keeps his promises and the promises he makes are really just astounding when we think about it we've already seen that he promised heaven and that we would he would come and take his believers there he promised that we'd have all the resources of heaven at our disposal He promised he would send the Spirit of truth to us. He promised that he would return to us again, that we would dwell with the Father. He promised that we would become the temple of the living God. He promised all-surpassing, all-encompassing supernatural peace. And those are just a few of the things that he promised. Many of those things have already been fulfilled. So Jesus said that he would die, and he did. He said he'd be lifted up in his death, and he was. He said he'd rise, and he did. He said he would ascend to the Father, and he did. He said he would send the Holy Spirit, and he did. He said he would give supernatural life, and he did. Everything that Jesus said that he would do, he did. Every promise, every prophecy, every pledge was perfectly fulfilled just according to his plan. So we should desire to have Christ as our life because we can trust him. What else in this world can you say that about? When somebody promises something, do we know it's gonna happen? But we know that with Jesus because his promises are always fulfilled. There's nothing that, we'll, that we can rely on this world like Jesus. So Jesus is a good, holy, righteous, loving God who knows what's best for us. And he always keeps his promises. So Jesus knows us. He knows the future. And he keeps his promises. And as I said earlier, everything that Jesus is, we need. Everything that Jesus isn't, we don't need. So do you struggle with that today? Are you trying to find joy in the things that Jesus doesn't provide? Well, let's see if we can get at that this morning. So before we move forward, before we see the implications of sorrow being turned to joy, let's put ourselves in the place of the disciples. So on this side of the cross, on our side of the cross, we have the book of Acts. We have uh, the book of Acts that records the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the early church. We have the letters written by Paul that discuss theology, the the theology of the cross, the theology of of resurrection. We have the Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth, convicts us, as Brian shared last week. The disciples had none of that. Ours is a historic faith, and theirs was a prophetic faith. So even despite all the promises that Jesus was making, all those things, all this talk of Jesus dying, all this talk of Jesus going, was, was actually quite frightening to them. It's a scary thing. So we see that in verses 17 and 18. They're really confused. So look again at verses 17 and 18. The disciples say to each other, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So I, I can't help but think that the disciples are viewing this a little bit like a bad breakup. They're, they're saying, uh, they, they think Jesus is saying, you know, it's not, it's not you, really it's me. And I know what with the betrayal and all, you might think that it's you, but really it's me. And, and they're saying to him, but Jesus, wait, just stop. Don't go, help us. Help us understand what you want. We'll change, we'll do better. Whatever it is that you want, we'll do it. So look at their question and confusion in verse 17 and 18. And they're saying, what are you talking about, Jesus? You say a little while this, a little while that. Speak plainly to us. But look at this. Jesus knows them. He knows what they need. He knows them so well that he responds not to their question, but he responds to their need. In verses 19 and 20, it says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy." So again, he doesn't answer their question, but he does better than that. He knows they're not prepared for the coming grief, the coming um, difficulties of their master being taken away, being betrayed and being crucified. So in love, he responds not to that question, but he responds to their need for reassurance. So he tells them that there's trouble coming. That's not very encouraging, but yet he promises them joy. That promise is meant to sustain them through the sorrow that they're going to experience. So Jesus used the perfect example here when he talks about childbirth. Now, this seems like dangerous to me, this seems like dangerous water for a a man to tread in to talk about childbirth, but I think if, if anyone is qualified, it's the perfect sinless son of God. So he's allowed to talk about childbirth. So read verse 20, he says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So this is not my main point, but just as an assignment. I, I think this is even more proof, actually, that, that Jesus knows us. He's talking to a bunch of dudes about childbirth, right? I've, uh, my GC guys get together occasionally. I've been with other guys. I cannot ever, ever remember talking about childbirth with a bunch <laughs> of guys. So is it possible that Jesus is actually using this example, not just for the disciples, but for the countless other uh, Thousands, millions of people who would read his words hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. I think so. I think this is not just meant for the disciples, this is meant for all of us here today. So anyway, that's an aside. Jesus is saying that their sorrow of his death on the cross wouldn't be displaced by joy. He's saying that their sorrow will actually turn into joy. So just as in childbirth, the very thing that produces pain Actually produces her joy and just like that the very thing the cross that caused the disciples grief is actually going to cause their joy as well and that can't be taken away he says so we need that today don't we we need our mourning turned into joy we need comfort we need gladness in exchange for sorrow So you don't have to look very far to just look around and realize that we live in an imperfect world. We lived in a messed up place. And let's be very clear on this. All sorrow is a result of living in a fallen world. All sorrow is the result of sin. But even the joy, think about this, even the joy that you have is often tainted by sorrow. Do you understand what I mean? Even when things are going well in your life, isn't there often just a twinge of something not quite right? Don't you just feel like maybe the other shoe's going to drop? Uh, something bad is right around the corner? Doesn't it often feel like there's something better that's out there? Even when you're in the midst of joy, there's something better for us out there. We know that, but right now we're in the midst of sorrow. So we need to have a promise, just like the disciples, we need to have a promise that sustains us through our sorrow. So sometimes God doesn't answer our questions either, does He? Have you ever prayed and asked God for an answer and He doesn't answer the question that you want? Sometimes He answers instead our need, just like He does the disciples. Now that can be frustrating because we want answers. We want answers. God, we have a question. Answer this for me now. Give me an answer. I want the answer. So let me give you a, an example that hopefully might help us. Think back to when you were a child, and, or if you're a child, think back to yesterday. And if you remember when you were rebellious, you wanted something, and you did wrong to get that thing, and your parents disciplined you, or your teacher disciplined you. So what did that produce? That produced sorrow in that moment, right? But hopefully, maybe not always, but hopefully you can look back and you can see how that taught you something. That taught you a lesson. That produced some goodness in your life. And hopefully that produced some joy as you look back. That, that rebellion, that bad thing that you did, that caused sorrow, but the discipline of it, it changed your life in some way or, or taught you some lesson that produced some, some type of joy. So you went searching for something, your parents or, or teacher didn't answer your search but they supplied you with your need. We see that in our grief today too. Sometimes great loss and grief can actually produce great growth and joy in our lives. Some of you know what that's like. But do we trust that God knows our needs better than we do? Well, here we see that when Jesus responded to their need, he reassured the disciples that all of the, the seemingly bad events, the, the crucifixion, the betrayal, the abuse, all of those things that Jesus was going to receive were actually going to produce joy. And they were actually going to be for the disciples' good. So do you believe that in your life? Do you believe that the seemingly bad events that happen in your life can actually produce joy or be for your good. Now, How can that be? Let me give you just a couple of examples of that. That struggle that you have with pornography. It causes great anguish, great frustration. But doesn't God want you to take that trial? Doesn't he want you to take that temptation and give it over to him? Won't that produce great joy in your life as you rely on him in your time of need Won't that produce great joy in your life as you confess your weakness to another brother who's going to lift you up in prayer, who's going to hold you accountable? That's sorrow being turned into joy that only God can do. One, One other example of that. What about the pain of loneliness that you're experiencing? Maybe you feel you've been rejected by someone and that you'll never be married. Maybe... You're married right now and you still feel horribly lonely. Now that's sorrow to be in that that situation, that experience. But God so much wants to be bigger to you, bigger than your loneliness. He wants you to focus on Him. He wants to be the rock or the anchor in the storm of your life in the midst of that loneliness. So rather than you focusing solely on your circumstances or on your experiences, He wants you to focus on Him. What joy you'll experience in your life when you see that this trial of loneliness, this sorrow actually can bring you closer to God. So think for just a moment. I mentioned pornography and loneliness. Think back to what I asked you at the very beginning about what causes sorrow in people's lives or what causes sorrow in your life. Could it be that that thing that causes sorrow in your life is something that God wants to turn into joy as you rely on him, as you trust him for that thing? so this could apply to anything in your life right now that's what jesus was saying to disciples here in their time of need they had questions they wanted answers and jesus didn't answer their question he answered their need so one other thing that i want us to notice joy is always linked to something else joy is always linked to something else joy doesn't exist on its own in scripture. It's always connected to something. So let me give you just a couple of examples, a couple of recent examples in scripture. So if we go back just to what for us is three or four weeks ago when Pastor Chuck preached this passage, or if you turn back your page or your your Bible one page, or if we look at it from the disciples perspective, this is just a few minutes ago when Jesus said this. John chapter 15 verses nine through 11, Jesus said, as the father has loved me, So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So in this passage, Jesus clearly links joy in a believer to an obedient relationship with Christ. Joy is not meant to be experienced apart From abiding in Christ apart from making Christ your life that's the pattern of Scripture for a believer when we make Christ our life we experience joy we see joy linked to something else here in verse 24 that we just read so I don't think I have that up on the screen find that real quick verse 24 of chapter 16 Jesus says until now you have asked nothing in my name ask and you will receive That your joy may be full so here joy is linked to faithfully praying in the father's name or in jesus name so what's the implication here about joy being linked to other things in the believer's life well joy is not an independent emotion it's not unconnected with other aspects of our lives as believers So a believer shouldn't expect to be showered with joy from God, irrespective or apart from their relationship with Christ. But how often are we angry with God, or how often are we disappointed or deluded because God's not giving us the desires of our heart? He's not giving us what we want. He's not showering us with those things. He's not giving us that that loving romantic relationship, or he's not giving us that obedient child, Or he's not giving us that job that we really want. Or he's not giving us that child. So we feel, because of that, we feel like the Christian life is a lie. But the believer who simply expects joy to come down from the sky in the form of whatever their heart desires, regardless of their prayer life, regardless of whether they're abiding in Christ or making Christ their life, they're simply misguided. So I wonder how many of us believers here today are, are expecting joy apart from making Christ our life. Are expecting joy apart from abiding in Christ. So many, I would suspect, in this room are searching for joy, but we're not finding it. We live lives of emptiness, lives that have little lasting joy. And because we're searching for joy for, for the, from the world joy from people or joy from things, and we're not abiding in Christ. We're not searching for the joy in the things that he provides us. And the reason that we live with little joy, the reason that God doesn't seem to answer the prayer that we throw up of, God, give me this, or God, give me that, or God, make me joyful, is because God knows what you really need. He's not answering that question of give me this or give me that. He knows what you really need. What you really need is Him. What we really need is Him. So the reason the disciples had joy, even in the midst of great persecution, even to death, was because they abided with the Holy Spirit. Their priority and focus in life was on God. Their joy didn't leave when Jesus ascended to heaven. They had the power to seek after the things that give true joy, because they were abiding in Christ. So I asked this question earlier, what brings joy to your life? If you want a quick test of your spiritual life, I think that's a great question to ask. What brings joy? So if a desire to make Christ your life, or if a loving relationship with him is the, the basis or the foundation for the answer to that question, then you're, you're fulfilling Jesus' expectations of you. But if you find obedience to Christ to be difficult, not just difficult, but if you find obedience to to Christ to be something that it's so difficult that you just push it aside. You don't even think about it. It doesn't matter to you. If you have very little to no quality time with God, or if the only overtly spiritual life you have is on Sunday mornings or some evening with your gospel community, then you're Check spiritual engine. Light ought to be flashing right now on your dashboard. Nothing will feed your soul. Nothing will complete your joy more than a deeper awareness of the Father's love for you. So notice how Jesus finished his teaching his disciples with verse 33. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world." So everything that Jesus has said to the disciples in the upper room had one purpose, and that was to give them peace. Now he began the bulk of his teaching, the disciples in the upper room, with John chapter 14, verse one. And he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So notice the beginning and the end, both his beginning and his end focus on Jesus they focus on himself both promise a messed up world but both promise peace in that messed up world as we put our faith and trust in Christ so all who love Jesus and keep their eyes on him who make him the focal point of their life regardless of their circumstances great joy comes in trusting God and in making him your life joy can be found in this sorrowful world by following Jesus by looking at the world through the lens of Jesus through the lens of the cross and the resurrection but oh how often that we we aim for what we believe will give us joy in the world so where do you get your worth where does your value come from is it in your child is it in whichever man loves you is it in what job you have, and how do you spend your time, and how do you spend your money? Is it on video games? Is it on Netflix? Is it on Facebook? Is it on your image? And what are you seeking to give you joy? Are you seeking after love, or education, or money, or your children? Psalm chapter sixteen, verse eleven. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. This is David talking to God. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, Doesn't that sound like good news when we hear that? Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are found in Jesus Don't you see that if we aim for heaven, if we aim for for our joy, finding joy in Christ, abiding in Christ, then we get joy in heaven and on earth. But if we aim for joy in the things of this world, we'll get neither joy in heaven nor on earth. So look at life through the lens of Christ. He could see the cross. It was always looming. But over and over, we saw we have sorrow that produces joy. The sorrow is that the world is evil. But the joy is that God loves the world enough to send his son to die for that world. The sorrow is that the world rejected Jesus and condemned him to die. But the joy is that by that same death, Jesus defeated Satan. The sorrow is that the world persecutes God's people. But the joy is that we know that Jesus was persecuted and what, what better footsteps for us to follow in than his? The sorrow is that the world is trouble, but the joy is that living by faith in Jesus enables us to live in this trouble world with the hope of life in heaven. Let me end this morning with a story I heard Tim Keller use. He um, tells a story of a pastor back in the 1940s 1950s he married uh, a young woman and they had one child and before this this little girl was even 10 years old uh, the mother passed away very tragic death so leaving the the husband the father and the little daughter alone and so the father was trying very hard to help the little girl make sense of and help himself make sense of why uh, this woman why his wife why the mother had had passed away So one day, they were walking along a busy street, city street, they crossed the street and a truck almost hit them and the little girl, of course, was very scared and so the dad scooped her up and was trying to comfort her and he had this this great idea and he, he said to her, you know how we're very sad about your mother dying and she said yes, yes we're very very sad and he said well let me ask you, did the truck hit you and she said no, And he said, well, what hit you? And she stopped and she thought for a moment. She said, it was just the shadow, just the shadow of the truck hit me. And he said, well, what hit your mother? And she looked at him and didn't understand what he was saying and he answered for her. He said, it was just the shadow of death that hit your mother. Because the shadow of death hit your mother, we know that death hit Jesus. And because death hit Jesus, it's only the shadow of death that hits us so all this sorrow that we go through is just the shadow of death and that shadow of death is just our entrance into glory when we get to spend all of that time with God so the battle has been fought and the victory has been won and Jesus has overcome we have joy when we live for Christ when we seek to abide in him when we make christ our life and when we see through the lens of the cross when we see through the lens of his resurrection and his coming return let me pray father i thank you for